When the entire nation had finished crossing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Select twelve men from the people, one from each tribe, and command them. Take twelve stones from here, out of the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priests' feet stood. Carry them over with you and lay them down in the place where you camp tonight. Then Joshua summoned the twelve men from the Israelites whom he had appointed, one from each tribe. Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan, and each of you take up a stone on his shoulder, one for each of the tribes of the Israelites, so that this may be the sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off in front of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the Israelites a memorial forever. The Israelites did as Joshua commanded. They took up the 12 stones out of the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites. As the Lord told Joshua, carried them over with them to the place where they camped and laid them down there. Joshua set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood and they are there to this day. The priests who bore the ark remained standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people crossed over in haste. As soon as all the people had finished crossing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests crossed over. In front of the people, the Reubenites, the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over armed before the Israelites, as Moses had ordered them. About 40,000 armed for war crossed over before the Lord to the plains of Jericho for battle. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. The Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant to come up out of the Jordan. Joshua therefore commanded the priests, Come up out of the Jordan. When the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came up from the middle of the Jordan... The soles and the soles of the priests' feet touched dry ground. The waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. Those twelve stones which they had taken out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal, saying to the Israelites, 
When your children ask their parents in time to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel crossed over the Jordan here on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you crossed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we crossed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Thank you, Carolyn. Now just grab my things for me and we'll be right. It's a little hard to imagine just how much Joshua would have had to think about on that day when, here we go, when goodness knows how many people, some, some speculate that two million, three million, some say hundreds of thousands of people, but a large number of Israelites crossed through the Jordan River. Joshua must have had a thousand tasks to think about, people everywhere, some people panicking and fretting about where we're going to get across, who knows. And yet, at that moment, God adds to the whole thing another task, which is to gather these stones. I think God does that because that day, the crossing of the Jordan, was a miracle unlike anything that people had seen in that generation before. The people who'd gone through the, the Red Sea with Pharaoh behind had all passed away, this was a new generation seeing something absolutely astonishing, a miraculous day. Miraculous days are fun, aren't they? When, when you get a day, yesterday's weather, almost miraculous, wasn't it? It was just absolutely crisp and beautiful. But the thing about life is that most days in our lives are really quite ordinary, aren't they? Very ordinary, sometimes tediously ordinary. And what, what the Lord is planning in these stones... We've got a little example here, is that in the ordinary days that follow the miraculous day, there'll be a reminder, a memorial that will instruct generations to come about the miracle that took place on that day. So God says, you heard Karen say it, bring out of the middle of the river these stones that will become a lasting memorial that we can show our children and our children's children. But I want to share with you a couple of odd things out of the story, odd-ish, that I hope will paint a picture that might not be quite what we thought. The first thing that strikes me as a little strange is the fact that the rocks were able to be carried on their shoulders. Now just think about this a little bit. When I was a youth pastor, which is a long, long time ago, we had, our youth group had a particular specific interest in rocks in the middle of rivers because we had this activity which we practiced often called rock walking. Has anybody ever heard of rock walking? It's an unusual activity. What we used to do in our youth group, and this will be pretty startling to people who are involved in insurance or 
youth groups or anything, anything at all these days. But this is a while ago. We used to go to uh, um, a river very, very often near Tamworth where I was living. We had about 80 kids in our youth group. Not all of them came to the river, but many of them did. And we would get in the water and we would find a rock underwater that was, it had to be underwater, I'll explain why, that was only just bearable to hold. It had to be so big that you could only just tolerate it. And then, it's quite a wide river and deep too, then we would take a great lungful of air and walk across the river, down through the mud, cross like this, and back up the other side. That's called rock walking. <laughs> Have you, has anybody ever done it? <laughs> you don't know what you're missing. <laughs> I don't know where the local rock walking site is, but there would be one somewhere, and you should give it a go. It's really weird because in the, in the deep, murky green of the, the water, this river, I guess, it went to about 12 feet deep. And when you're right at the bottom, you can hardly see anything and you're charging along with this enormous rock and a lung full of air, trying to get to the other side before you pass out or <laughs> trip. And then all of a sudden, in the gloom, you see this other person coming, <laughs> coming the other way with an enormous rock. And because of the sand, everybody gets this funny sort of tilt on them, so they sort of got the rock like this and you sort of, they seem to be leaning on this really weird slope. The worst thing is if you actually bump into somebody carrying a rock because the noise that the rocks make when they hit is just like water conducts sound so much quicker than air and this noise just, ah! But you don't want to drop your rock because you've still got to get to the other side. So we knew a lot about rocks. You had to get the heavy, you couldn't pick it up outside of the water because if you did, you, would, you just couldn't negotiate into the water. It had to be so heavy that you couldn't carry it on dry land, otherwise it wouldn't hold you down well enough. So, <laughs> it was such an activity. <laughs> I lived in an era, I was a youth pastor in an era that all you really needed was a box of matches and a guitar, and, and that, that was youth. And, you know, you could, get, you could get so many kids to just come and sit around on the edge of the river with a guitar and a box of matches and light a fire and sing. It was just fantastic. Those were the good old days. Weren't they good? Oh. I've never in my life done a risk assessment. Because <laughs> to me... That sounds like an oxymoron. <laughs> How can you possibly have a risk assessment? That's just silly. Risk. <laughs> <laughs> you know, another thing we used to do, that we used to take an annual youth camp to Murundi, and in the hills behind Murundi, there's some cast limestone formations, and we used to go in a cave. And we, one part of the cave was only this round, and you had to sort of wiggle through like a snake, and we'd take 20 or 30 kids in this cave and we never counted them in or out. <laughs> it's really weird when I think back to it. It's like, did that really happen? It did, year after year. And as far as I know, we never lost a child. And <laughs> as the years progress, I get more secure about that idea, you know, because it's less likely that one will turn up now. <laughs> These rocks... 
These rocks. Oh. That Joshua asked the, the men to gather had to be of a size you could put on your shoulder. Now, I don't think I could put much of a bigger rock than that on my shoulder. And it just interests me because I would have thought that if you wanted something that was going to be memorable, a memorial, you'd need whopping big rocks. But no, they had to be shoulder-sized rocks. And this is a little clue in the story. Keep it in your mind and just be aware of it. Just remember, shoulder-sized rocks. Just in passing, if you're super vigilant, you might have noticed that verse 9 seems to talk about a second set of rocks that end up in the middle of the river. I don't know whether you noticed it. I've never come across more theories in Bible interpretation than this little bit. And so I'm not going to go into it at all because I have no idea what's going on there. There are endless theories. There's a, the most likely is probably that there's a word that, that should say from the river instead of in the river. But anyway... We're going to leave it there. There's so much from this story that we can gain richness from that I don't think we need to get stuck on it. I asked Stuart to get me these rocks. And I've got to say, when Stuart delivered them to my front door, I was pretty underwhelmed with, <laughs> with his efforts. <laughs> because it's It's odd. If you were the guy that Joshua sent into the river, what sort of rock do you think you'd be looking for? Forget the size for the moment. But I had in my mind, just, just for this morning's sermon, not for a, a memorial for the ages to come, but just for today, I had in my mind this sort of smooth rock that was slightly asymmetrical so that it was like, hmm, it caught your eye and it was like interesting. Not like that. And I'd, I, I, was, I may have even asked Stuart to get better ones. I can't remember now. But it certainly... I did, did I? Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I thought these were rubbish rocks, honestly. <laughs> I thought I could have done better. Anyway. But then, I, I think from memory, it's a little while ago now, I sent a message back. No, Stuart, don't get different ones. These are actually the ones we want. Because I realised as I looked at them sitting at my front door that it's actually ordinary rocks that they would have found, not interesting, asymmetrical, highly polished river, river rocks. They would have been ordinary rocks. This was, a, this was a dramatic, busy day. They just had to get in there, grab a few rocks and get out. And this is a second clue. Shoulder-sized rocks, but also very, very ordinary rocks that came out of the river. Why did the rocks have to come from the river? Why couldn't they have just been rocks beside the river? Well, that's because the river itself, the Jordan River, is a hugely symbolic thing. It's like a frontier. The Jordan River was the separation between the past and the future, between slavery behind us and freedom and liberty, a life that God had promised that lay ahead. And the water was what stood between the people 
and the blessing, the people and the promise. The water itself was uh, crucial to the story. But the water is crucial to the whole biblical story. And you can quickly think of other moments when water gets divided. In creation, there's um, a sense there that the water is separated and out of the separation in the creation story, God brings the, the world. The crossing of the, uh, the Red Sea with Pharaoh's armies right, right behind. Over and over again in the scripture, water carries this, this sense of deliverance and salvation. Water in the, uh, in the ancient world was something to be feared. We live in a, in a, in a sort of an unusual time, really, where people swim. That's a fairly modern idea, swimming. I had, a, I had an uncle once who I admired greatly. He was a farmer of the really old school. He, he could crack a stock whip. He'd have, he'd have me hold cigarette papers. And he could crack a stock whip and cut it in half. And then he could cut the half in half. And I was young and foolish enough and I had never done a risk assessment, as I'd mentioned. <laughs> and so it didn't trouble me. I saw him, I saw this, I saw him hold a cigarette paper behind his back and crack the stock whip and cut it in half. I saw that. Extraordinary man. Once he fell off a horse. Now, his extraordinariness may have led him into sort of certain areas of... Mm, we won't say lying, but elaboration. For example, he told me that you can't keep goanna oil in a glass bottle because it's too thin. It'll run through the glass. <laughs> he told me that. <laughs> I sort of have to believe him, but you don't have to believe him. But I remember he was afraid of water. He couldn't swim. He was this tough guy. He, oh, that's right. he, he, he was riding behind stock, and, and his horse put a foot down down a rabbit burrow, and the horse fell over him. This is another story he told me. You'll have to decide whether it's a Goanna Royal story or a real story. And the horse fell on him, and it was three days before anybody noticed that he was missing and came and found him. And for three days, he lay under a dead horse. Do you believe it? Vote. Okay, ready? Who believes, who believes the story? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> One. <laughs> Oh, my poor uncle. <laughs> do you know, do you know when, when my uncle died, I was, um, I was a hospital chaplain at that time, and I'd, I came into his room. I didn't intend to tell you this, but it's just absolutely remarkable. I was in the, the ward, and there was so many family, and then for some reason all the family left. And I thought... It's a moment that I can speak to him because we'd had spiritual conversations. He wasn't a, a practicing Christian by any means and he was unconscious in a hospital ward and I said to him when everybody had left the room, I don't remember why they left the room, I said to him, um, you, can, you can leave now if you want to. Every, everything's good. Everybody's been with you. If it's time for you to go, you can go. And I prayed with him. And he died. Before anybody came back in the room, he was gone. Interesting, isn't it? Anyway, that's a major diversion. Water in the ancient world was to be feared. And the reason it was to be feared is that it was the place where monsters dwell. 
some of the oldest biblical stories have this sense in them. There's Leviathan. Do you remember coming across Leviathan? I think it's in four Old Testament books. And people speculate that it's a crocodile or a hippopotamus, but more likely it's a water monster, something terrible, something fierce. When Jesus drove the demon out of demons out of the, um, the demoniac in the story and they rushed into the pigs. Do you remember that? Curious story. Where did the pigs go? The pigs rush into the sea. Why is that? Because the sea is the place where demons live. It's the place of evil. When Jesus, interestingly, when Jesus walks on the water, I'm not very good at this illustration, but anyway, I can do it a bit. When Jesus walks on the water, and when he invites Peter to walk on the water too, that's not just simply a contradiction of physics. That's, that's what we see it as, I guess, isn't it? It's like a stark contradiction of physics, but it's not only that. What they are doing then is standing on the evil realm. They're standing on the realm of demons, and they're... Perhaps I speculate that that grabs people's attention in the ancient world more than the physics that we're aware of. I don't know. But that's the symbolism and that's what that's about. And so when you see the water being parted and people walking through it, you get a deeper sense of what that means. It's an extraordinary liberation. It's overcoming evil. It's walking through the midst of defeat into the promise of God. That's why the rocks have to come from the middle of the river. Because it's about deliverance. It's about the overcoming at the, at the deepest level. It's about salvation. So now we've got two hints about the, the rocks. They're not big. They're medium-sized rocks that a big bloke can put on his shoulder. They're ordinary rocks, and there are only 12 of them. And I have wondered, in the generations that followed, when fathers packed up their, their family and took them on a long journey to Gilgal to look at the 12 stones, when they got there and they found a pile of 12 rocks, I want to know, I'd love to know, I'd love to have seen whether the children were actually impressed. Because can't you hear them saying, is that it, Dad? You, you brought us all the way here to see that? A little pile of rocks. It's, it's unimpressive in a way, I think. And I hold that thought in your mind because I think there's, a, there's a, a fabulous richness that comes out of that as we move through. What are the memorial stones that we've, most of us, I'm sure, established in our lives from time to time so that, as this scripture says, our children might know and understand. I can think of so many things. We do them in church, we do them in our homes. We had a little box on our, on our dinner table, kitchen table, dinner table, for years. A little box and it had promises in it. Whoever had a promise box? Anybody? Oh yeah, much more than believed in the story about the, the horse. That's good. And when you take a promise out and you read it when you say grace at mealtime. Family devotions. Who's had a go at that? When our kids are small, we try, don't we, to establish a routine, a daily practice as often as we can at the table when we can read the Bible perhaps and share stories together. I had an elaborate set of Christmas readings that I once tried to institute in our family. 
it didn't work all that well, but at least I had a shot. When I was first came into salvation, I used to meet the pastor of the church that I was going to every Monday afternoon. Um, and he would drill me on memory verses. I had to turn up with new verses memorized and he'd test me every Monday afternoon over and over. I've kept journals for much of my life with scripture written in them and I've got a rack full of them now on the bookcase going like this way back. There are many things that we do, aren't there, to create memorials, to create something that will impart faith onwards. I suppose you could look at our own service today in, in that sense. It's, a, it's, a, it's not a ritual, is it? It's a, it's a gathering together with such purpose and intent that we want to remember our faith and encourage each other to believe it and to go forward in it. But when I look back on my list of memorial stones from my family's life, I have to admit that not many, if any, of those things endured. They have their season, and they're good for their season, but they didn't last all that long. Which brings me back to this pile of rocks that Joshua's assembled. And I wonder how long they really lasted. Because it was an unremarkable little pile of rocks, I think. Which, when you consider that this is meant to be a memorial, does seem unusual. There's an interesting verse in, um, in um, Exodus when the Ten Commandments are handed down. And God says, if you build me an altar, it must be built of undressed stones. A dressed stone is a stone that's been chiseled and squared off so that it can be used in a, in a wall or an altar or anything like that. God says, if, if you build me an altar, it must be built of undressed stones. And what that is about is an, is an image of the absence of human effort. So something that's built for God has to be devoid of human effort. And that's a wonderful picture of salvation and grace, isn't it? Because there, there's no salvation by our own strength. We understand that. And so the raw stone that goes into the altar in Exodus is a really good picture of that. And similarly, these stones that Joshua brought from the river are also devoid of human effort. They're just a pile of rocks. And one more thing to carry with you this morning as we move in a minute to the New Covenant I think, and not everybody will agree with me now, but I think that in a sense this little pile of 12 stones that Joshua set up was always destined to fail. Think about that and I'll explain it more in a minute. Karen's going to come back and read from the New Testament because we need to move everything, I reckon, Everything we do has to be viewed through, through the lens of the new covenant. There's a, there's a temptation in all of human activity to externalise things. 
And so we, we make our memorial stones an external thing. We set up a habit, we create a, a ritual even, we rely on a box full of cards or something like that. Faith, of course, is an, is an inward experience. It's not built on externals. And with that in mind, Karen's going to read three uh, passages from, from the New Testament. Listen carefully, won't you? The first one is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 5. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3, 1-3 Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and ready and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ. The result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human heart. Now, last one, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Such a huge change as we move from the old covenant to the new in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, there are no stones other than living stones. So there's no temple made of stones. There's only a spiritual temple made of living stones. There's no altar because one sacrifice was, was offered by Jesus Christ that pays for all the dead of sin. There are no memorial stones either in the New Covenant because we are the stones. I am the memorial stone. You are the memorial stone. In my sphere of influence, in my family, I am the stone. Karen's the stone as well. There's no avoiding this. We can no longer in the new covenant rely on an external because we've come to faith. Christian faith is internal, it's not external. It can't be memorialised, it can't be systematised, really. It's not a code to be fulfilled. And although we've got two sacraments, we have a sacrament of baptism and a sacrament of the Lord's table, both of which we've celebrated in, in the last two or three weeks, our faith fundamentally is not sacramental. It's not based on external. There's no rite, there's no ritual to, to lead us to holiness. 
and there's no list of things that we can do to succeed. Our faith is internal and we, we cannot point to externals and say to our children, there it is, that's what you need to know. The only way that we can move forward as a church and as families is to be living stones. People need to look at us, not at something external that we can, we can show them. We are the living stones out of which the temple of God is made. Now, see if you can recall the three things that I mentioned about these stones when we were talking about them when they were back in the river. The first one was that they were small enough to to fit on your shoulder. Think about what Paul says, I'll read to you. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. That's why these rocks were small, because it it, it was never meant to be about the strength of men. As soon as you begin on the path of of will as an anchor for faith, you're you're going to fail, aren't you? Because our, our exercise of strength is never enough to meet the task. We can never rely on willpower alone to defeat a habit of sin. We can never rely on willpower alone to move forward in our spiritual devotional life with Christ. When I was quite young, 18 I think, I uh, lived in a house that was owned by a, a missionary and I found on a bookshelf a little thin book called they found the secret. And I can remember sort of diving on this book because the title grabbed me. I really wanted to know what the secret was because I hadn't yet found it. And I, I, I read through this book and it was a sort of a, an anthology of biographies about people who had found the secret. But in my older life, I think there is no secret other than the mystery of Christ crucified. And... At any point that we rely on anything of our own strength to hold us to God or to pass the the substance of faith forward to either our family or to the members of our church or to, to anybody at all, the minute we rely on ourselves to do that, we're doomed to fail because God is the one who equips us and strengthens us. And these small stones are a fabulous... Uh, picture of the folly of trying to do it ourselves. The next interesting thing that I pointed out, courtesy of Stuart's inability to find big rocks that I liked, (laughs) was how ordinary these are. They sat outside my front door for ages and once it dawned on me that the ordinariness was, was really almost the key to it, I began to think about us. If you look to your left or to your right, you'll find something very ordinary next to you. <laughs> With the exception of two and possibly three quite handsome, glamorous people in our congregation. I'm not going to mention who they are, but with the exception of those two, a possible third, 
the person you're looking at isn't, isn't all that far removed from that. We've got... <laughs> seriously, we, we've got wrinkles. Not all of us have wrinkles, but most of us have wrinkles, especially now that the people without wrinkles have gone to their program. <laughs> it's, not, it's not polite to distinguish the, the parts of the body of Christ that way, but it's just true. The wrinkles and the not wrinkles, it's the way it is. We are, we are ordinary and we are unremarkable, aren't we? We are. We are unremarkable. And that's, that's the way it's meant to be. Listen again to what Paul says. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. See, our ordinariness is actually our qualification, isn't it? It's our weakness that qualifies us to be the inheritors of God's grace, not our strength. And so this little pile of stones begins to speak pretty loudly from, from so long ago to me about the actual, the actual path of being a memorial stone, of being a light set on a lampstand to shine into the world, of being, as Karen read, a letter written not on tablets of stone but on a human heart. Now, don't think that I just grabbed every verse with stone in it and tried to cobble them together because that would be not appropriate exegetical practice. But the, the, the idea of a stone does keep cropping up through Scripture and there's something to be learned from it. One more thing you can see in this is how, how much of it isn't there. There's bits missing all over this rock. I might show you the other one too. He's actually slightly better. But there's bits missing. So you can see a big part there that's sort of cracked off. And, and it's easy to imagine that it, that it once extended right out here. It might have extended right out here. It's been worn through its journey. And so have we. We often, we often in, our, in our lives find ourselves not increasing but decreasing as Christians. There's, a, there's a, what I think is a myth that God continues to increase us endlessly, but I don't think it's true. I think God allows us to travel through life and bits of us to fall off and, and our, our rough edges smooth down and, and we become shaped by life, but actually shaped by God himself in our life. And, and the ordinary thing that we end up being with all of its aches and pains and failings and weaknesses is the thing that God fills with his spirit. It's marvellous, isn't it? And can you see how if Joshua had got this wrong and chosen enormous rocks and, and got machinery to get it out of the river, whatever the machinery was, well, Egypt built the pyramids, so there was something that they could have done, presumably, it would have missed the mark altogether. 
The third thing that I said, and I said it's controversial, to me, the pile of stones that Joshua set up was doomed to fail, always doomed to fail. How, how could you have one pile of small, ordinary river rocks to teach a nation of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people? How could that work? It, it just couldn't work, could it? The line would be unending of people rolling up with their kids in the back of the cart or something to see the stones. And then the kids go, really? We came here for that? From the very beginning, I think that this pile of rocks was insubstantial and God was giving us a lesson in that insubstantiality. It's an unremarkable memorial. Listen to what Paul says one more time. He said to me, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insult, in hardship, in persecution, in difficulty. For when I am weak, then I am strong. But perhaps the most remarkable thing about these stones is this. I didn't get permission to do this. What am I doing? What am I doing to these rocks? I'm wetting them. <laughs> well done. <laughs> that was terrific. Who's, who came up with that? The most important thing about the stones that Joshua brought out of the river is that they were wet. That's the thing that really matters. They're baptised stones, really, aren't they, in a sense? Although we've got a technical problem here because I sprinkled these guys. I didn't immerse them. So <laughs> for, some, for some died in the wool Baptists, which I'm not, that, that's going to annoy you. should have thought more about it. I should have got a bucket of water, shouldn't I? The stones are wet. The stones are wet because we have to come out of the river. If back in my rock-walking days, I'd have fainted underwater and dropped the rock on my foot and couldn't get out from under it, I wouldn't be here today. I had to come out of the river. And thankfully, as far as I know, everybody did come out of the river, <laughs> although there is a certain uncertainty in saying that, but as far as I know. But for us to be living stones, we have to come out of the river, don't we? Christian life, our faith, is not a lifestyle, although it is that as well. It's not simply faith. It's not simply a philosophy, although there's a philosophy in it. It's not simply doctrine. Our faith is a faith of transformation. Our faith rests on the fact, and we celebrate it whenever we see a person baptised, our faith rests on the fact that we have been crucified with Christ. Paul says it, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And unless the old life has been um, put to death and Christ's life has been received by us, 
We can never be this. We can never be the light that shines in a dark place for our world, for our family, for our friends. We can never be um, the memorial stone that is a declaration of, of, of the, the truth of Jesus Christ unless we came out of the river. It's the absolute essential. Pastor David used a, a wonderful phrase um, a couple of weeks ago which stayed with me so strongly. He said when, we were, when he was baptising, I think they were young people in our congregation, and he may have said it more than once, challenging them to live a life of obedience in Christ. It's not the, it's not the act of baptism that's the obedience, although that is obedience, but the real obedience is living wet, living because we've got the power of God that comes to us out of baptism. Baptism, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. That's perhaps the most essential message that those river rocks can give us. We must be transformed. We must be born again. To be effective for Christ, to live a life that shines in this world, we must be born again. There's no other way. Amen. Will you pray with me?